Welcome to Addiction Nonfiction, hosted by family recovery advocate and writer Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from people who have been affected by or active in addiction. Each episode will tell real, raw, sometimes unbelievable stories, opening up the lives of various guests. The goal is to take a deep look into topics related to addiction, alcoholism, family dysfunction, codependency, and other various types of madness, the real-life stuff we all experience. You can reach Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Hello, and we are back on Addiction Nonfiction, where we discuss real, raw stories from those who have been either active in alcoholism and addiction or have been what I call addiction or alcoholic adjacent. Today's guest is Ruth, a recovering family member. So let's just get started. One of the topics that I think we kind of wanted to cover, I've been doing this series of myths and things that are half-truths about drug addicts and addiction and alcoholism. So we were going to discuss the myth that an addicted person or the alcoholic, the one whose behavior is presenting the most, is the only one in the family needing to do the recovery work. That's the only one that needs to recover. So in introducing that, I would just like you to go ahead and begin with where your journey began. So welcome to Addiction Nonfiction. Thanks. Um, my journey started many, many years ago. I was very, I've was i been married twice, both times to alcoholics. The second one was um, he didn't drink, but he was... Um, I guess would be called a dry drunk. Okay, and I hope you don't mind if I ask you questions just as sure. we go. That's not meaning to be crosstalk, but just to kind of pull the information out. Um, your first husband that was an alcoholic, were you aware of it before you married him, no. or did it present later? No, we were um, we were 17 and 18 when we married. And oh, wow. I, and yeah. I didn't realize that he had a problem until we were into our, like, mid-20s when I didn't, want to, I didn't want to party anymore. I didn't want to yeah. do those things anymore because we had a child. Um, but that's how he lived his life. Right. He was always – that's what he was about. The child didn't make a difference to him. He wasn't ready no. to face he responsibility. He loved the child. Right. He loved the child, but he didn't um, – his, he was always about himself, doing for himself. He was going to do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. Right. And was, so, and obviously, you, you two must have divorced. So, was alcohol the reason you divorced? Yes, we did. But we didn't divorce for many years. We didn't divorce um, for a number of years, and we'd had a second child. And um, so, we divorced. And by that time, they both had, both of the kids had started to use. So how old were the kids when you got divorced? They were 24 and 17. Wow, you were together a long, oh, how long? long? 25 years. Wow, so you lived with this. Active alcoholism. He had five years of sobriety, but he didn't stay sober. Okay. He, he had five years of sobriety, but he relapsed. In that five years of sobriety, was he working any kind of recovery program or anything? Um, not really. He wasn't, I mean, he was sober. And he stayed sober. He did a few meetings in the beginning, but um, he just it, he just didn't do it. He just didn't work the program. And um, I didn't either. I can't just blame it on him and say that it's all, it was all his fault. I didn't either. I didn't understand that I had a problem, that alcoholism and addiction is a family disease. Right. And it, it affects the entire family. Were you drinking at that time or you no. were just affected by his drinking? I was affected by his okay. drinking and I didn't I didn't drink um, for more than 20 years. I didn't drink anything. And uh, So how did you cope with it when he would present alcohol? Scream. Oh really? Yell, cry, mis be miserable, physically sick. Uh, emotionally sick, spiritually sick. Yeah. And I and I watched. We were both. Um, I think about it now. As right before we divorced, we were both losing ground, and the disease in both of us presented kind of the same way. You know? I always think that's interesting because it kind of shows some of the same behaviors. Right. It is the same. Yeah. It is about the same because they deal with their emotions and problems by drinking and using, and we deal with them by denying and pretending, and, you know, we're confused, we're hurt, right. 
or threatening and ultimatums. And yes, <laughs> that doesn't work. Those don't ever work. Right, and it took me many years to learn that. That's one of the first things I learned when my own recovery journey began was to not say anything. If yeah. it came out of my mouth, I had to follow through. That was the best thing that I learned right away, but also the hardest because I would catch myself mid-sentence. I'm going to threaten, and then I would think, I can't do that. Yeah. If I say this, I have to carry it through. If I say I'm going to do this or this, whatever, I have to I have to do that thing. Am I willing? Like I'm going to leave. Or yeah. Or I'm. Or gonna, you're going to leave. Or I'm not going to speak to you. you okay. know? Or I'm not yeah. going to help you. Or you know what? And it was mostly when my uh, kids were using. Because you think the threats are going to work, but the threats aren't going to work. They don't care. You, you think I'll threaten this, but I won't have to act on it because the threat will be enough. But the threat's never enough. No, and they don't, they know your, they know. Your limits. And they know that you're threatening. Mm -hmm. And they don't believe, so they don't. So what happens in the family situation is you don't have respect. I did not have respect for either of my husbands. And they didn't have any respect for me because they couldn't believe what I said. Just like I couldn't believe what they were saying. Yeah, they couldn't believe what I was saying because I was threatened and say things and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do, and I didn't do any of those things. And I knew when I was saying it yeah, that I probably wasn't going to do it. I didn't have the spiritual strength to carry out those threats. And so I learned right away in my recovery journey that if I said it, I had to be truthful, just like I expected truth from them. I had to give them what I expected. Yeah. I, had, right. I, I wanted them to tell me the truth, so I began to tell them the truth. And it changed the family dynamic. It really did. Um, well, at first, it, it can make it worse. Yeah, because, yeah. Because you're, you're changing things, and they expect you to well, stick I heard, to the old ways. Yeah, I heard it said in um, a 12-step, um, in a classroom 12-step setting, that when you begin to put order into your life, and that's what the 12 steps do, and that's what yeah. recovery does, it puts order into your life. And when you begin to do that in your own personal life, because you certainly can't put it into another person's, but as you work your own recovery and you begin to put order into your life, then disorder at first will raise its head. Oh, wow. But then as you, as you continue on your journey, knowing, expecting that disorder will raise its yeah. head, and you go on and continue to put order upon order upon order in your life and tell the truth so that the people that you're, the family members that you're dealing with, when you show up maturely and truthfully to the situation, then they, their view of you changes. There's an Al-Anon promise. If one person in the family situation improves, the family situation is bound to improve and I think that's I know that's true that was my experience. I believe that's true too and also I think it's important to know it's a process because I think yes from the moment you begin to realize things have to improve you are on such an urgent mission for them to improve that when disorder raises its head it feels like it'll not it just you feel so hopeless I think because it feels like it's taking forever to improve or maybe it never will but you just have to kind of keep stick with the process or keep coming back as they say because order does eventually it it's like turning a ship around order does come yes and and if you and the, and the secret for me was to keep my eyes on myself because as i started to go through the uh, 12 steps for myself i realized that i was doing things out of fear never out of love i told myself that i loved my my children and i was doing what i was doing because i loved them and that wasn't the truth. The truth was I was fearful. You were wanting to be safe or to improve things. I didn't want to go, what if they would die? Yeah. What if, what's That's always what we're fighting against. Yeah, what if they die? What am I going to have to go through if they die? Will I ever be able to recover if they die? Yeah. So that would drive me to keep them from using, and I didn't have the power to do that. Well, when it's not a child that you are fighting against the fear of their death, but it is a spouse and it's that miserable dysfunction. What is it motivating us then? Because it, I don't think it's love then that keeps us in the cycle either. What is it then? I think it's, it's fear, fear of um, singleness. Maybe if it's a spouse, fear of being single, fear of what will my life look like if I'm a single person. 
I can't make it on my own. I can't make it on my own. I don't want to make it on my own. Right. I want this to be what I thought it was going to be. Right. And I, yes, I heard a rabbi say one time that we, as codependent people, as family members, we assign the person, our addicted loved ones, a personality. We assign them a personality and we refuse to deviate from the assigned personality that we've given them. We refuse to see them as they really are. And I think a lot of, lot for me, a lot of my situation with the marriages was they didn't want to be with me, but I, it was convenient. And eventually, I didn't want to be with them. Yeah. I didn't have love nor respect. I didn't, you know, respect was, I don't know, I was going to say love is the first to go, probably maybe love is the first to go, and then respect, and then it was, there just wasn't anything. There wasn't anything, and I think they felt the same way. They didn't love me. How could you love a screaming maniac? <laughs> and they didn't yeah. respect me because I lied as much as they did about with my threats and, you know, trying to You're get... trying to manipulate. Trying to manipulate yeah. the situation. Absolutely. I was as bad... My condition was as bad as theirs. Yeah. I heard a counselor say once that you become content to dwell. But the misery and the conflict, eventually, I think it, it can get the best of the situation and force consequences or decisions. Right, it yeah. does, it can. How, and you were married to the first one about 25 years. How long were you married to the second one? Eight years. Eight years. So how long between those marriages? Not very long, a year. So with the second husband, were you like, I'm not making the same mistakes, I'm choosing somebody completely different? He's completely different, he doesn't drink. Oh, really? He, Yeah, he didn't drink at all. He didn't drink at all. He um, had been involved in the 12-step programs. Um, but was he spiritually fit? In my opinion today, no, he's not. He wasn't. And I thought then that he might, that he was. I gave him too much. I just thought, if you don't drink, you don't have problems. <laughs> I didn't drink, so I didn't have problems. Right. So he I'm didn't drink. Yeah. yeah, and he didn't drink, so surely he doesn't have problems. But I was so right. comfortable. What I felt from him was, was um, familiar. It was comfortable, but it wasn't right. Right. So I thought he was an alcoholic too, though. Yes, he, he was. So he was a sober alcoholic. Sober. Mm-hmm. So like what a dry drunk that's not dry practicing drunk. emotional right. sobriety or program yes, or anything. Yes. Right. Like that. Right. No emotional sobriety. Yeah. Right. And then you ended up divorcing him, not over drinking issues. Uh, no, he didn't drink. So there weren't. There wasn't. It was just that that same stuff that goes on in the alcoholic home yeah, and the addicted home. It's the same stuff that, um, as I began to recover, I, my, as my journey started, I realized that I couldn't, he was emotionally abusive because probably that's what had been done to him as a child because he was an ACOA to an alcoholic. Yeah. And then explain that for child someone who doesn't of an know. Alcoholic. Yeah, adult child of an alcoholic adult is someone child, who is, um, they're an adult, but they're the child of an alcoholic, and they mm-hmm. still have childlike behaviors that are kind of left, like, and they grew, residual. Right, they grew up in alcoholic homes, right. so they... And a lot, you can be an ACOA if you grew up in a home with the, no drinking, but the leftover effects from alcohol. Right. 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 Because my father, I'm the youngest of six, my father had gotten sober before um, the youngest two of us were born so we were born into a sober home but there were all these effects so we would still be considered the dysfunction was still there yeah it was all untreated family dysfunction mm-hmm. yeah. right untreated alcoholism untreated right. family members right yeah yeah so it, it was fun it, yeah. it lingers doesn't it <laughs> it does so when did you realize that you had you were as sick as people in your life that were addicted um, I think it was. It started for me when I went into a family group and met someone who was like me, had alcoholic spouses or alcoholic spouse, ex-spouse, alcoholic children, and saw her recovery and saw that she had come out of the same situation that I was in with my children and with my husband at the time and soon to be ex-husband. And so as I watched her, I sort of, that's where I thought there's something wrong with me. This is not normal to always feel bad, to feel bad about yourself, to have physical. I was in my uh, late 40s, early 50s, and I was having physical problems. Yeah. 
from the disease that's just as they do as they age and um i just really realized that i did have issues she asked me to sit in this classroom go through a 12-step program and as i worked through it for my own self i and kept my eyes on my own self I began to realize that I had not ever, I always thought, well, I just love my kids so much. I just love so much. I didn't love. I was doing what I was doing out of fear and out of the, out of the um, motivation that I wanted them to do what I wanted them to do so that I could do feel better, what, feel better and do what I wanted to do right. without you know, worrying about them. Yeah. Because there was a lot of worry, as any parent who has an addicted child knows. There's and you come to a place, I think, where you're like, all of my misery is because of you people. Right. I'm doing all the right things. I'm not doing any of this drinking or drug using. You're causing my misery. And that's the, one of the hardest things about coming into a program is that you begin to look at your part in things and self-examine your exactly. life and your responses. And you find your misery's internal. Right. And if, and if for me... With, I divorced the first husband, was married right away to another husband, and the only thing that changed was the skin that they were in. Yeah. So I was attracted to and attracting the same personality. And at this point, your, your sons were using yes. both of them. And yes. was it alcohol or was it drug use? Both. Both. And were they addicted or recreational? No, addicted. So, and so you knew that you were in that battle. So yes. you, you went through your second divorce while your boys were both active? No, um, I went through my divorce after my oldest, as soon as he started to get sober. I then I just saw his recovery and wanted what he had too. So I saw recovery in two people. Yeah. Where the rubber meets the road, somebody that I was friends with and in my own family. And um, I wanted that peace and serenity, and I could see the freedom that they operated in, even though there were problems. Right. They weren't being held back or held down or made sick. Or losing it. Or losing <laughs> it over, you know. Right. Over, they were able to um, handle things as they came, life on life's terms. Yeah. So. And then, um, so seeing your son seeing some of his recovery and this woman that you met, what steps did you take to personally recover? How, what did that, what did recovery look like in your life? Because you're not recovering from a substance. So most, you know, a lot of people on layman's terms think recovery pertains to somebody who has an alcohol or drug problem. But as a family member, the whole family needs to recover. What were your steps? What did I do? Um, I can remember the night that I made the decision that um, <clears throat> she asked, she was going to be teaching a 12-step like classroom style group and she asked me she invited me to come and I can remember the night that it was it was like the it was the clearest the most clear thought that I'd had in a number of years I need to get my life straightened out my life straightened out and I, the second thought that I had was I need to, I need to get another divorce yeah I need to travel this road this journey by myself and I need to get another divorce. And so um, I just started going to her class and listening and being open to it, to the process, to the process of what am I doing? <laughs> what am I really doing? Why do I do this? Why do I want to do this for my sons? Is it because I love them or because I'm afraid? And a lot of it was I was doing things that I did for them out of fear or out of manipulation I wanted them to love me I wanted them to you know to do what I wanted them to do right at that point so it was um it was eye-opening for me it was about me yeah it was about being the best that I could be not just for them but for my own self and how that's up to you it's not up to what it's, their behavior dictates right their disease is not up to me it's right. their responsibility my disease is not up to them. And that's what I always wanted. I always wanted somebody to make me feel better yeah. about what was going on in my life. And no one has that power except me. No. I'm telling you when you when you talk about putting your life in order and disorder rising up, it reminds me of how I was about 
32 or 33 when I started. I'd always studied behavioral science and therapy mm-hmm. and things. I've always been in therapy and an advocate of that. But about 32 or 33, I got serious about self-examining and working a program and really taking aggressive steps to bring order into my life. And it was almost as if I realized... I started thinking, is everybody around me losing their mind? Who's next? Because I would, you know, have a terrible situation happen with a coworker, and it would expose that they were an alcoholic. And that, and then it would, you know, different friends of mine would kind of happen to betray me and stab me in the back. And then I had this situation with my mom rear its terrible head as my son fell into addiction. And it was like disorder came from every, it was like seven tornadoes came at one time. And I just remember thinking, I'm just trying to, get it together and get my life right and have a peaceful, calm life. And life's just getting worse. And, and I remember at the time thinking it was everybody outside of me and around me, you know, but there was nothing I could do about any of them. Right. But we're, we're fearful and confused. And, um, and you're, you've also attracted a lot of it into your life. And somehow, and I, this, I mean, I attracted it at work. I had work relationships with people that, that, replicated sibling relationships or I would think oh my gosh this woman acts just like my mom does toward me or right. this this these people bully me just like my four brothers or I would have all these situations repeat over and over and I'm like how do, I don't want to be a victim type person but I feel like I'm in the middle of chaos constantly and I'm not asking for it or liking it but I would attract it right because we do I think we do especially when you're when we're fearful and confused um and we're not able to identify, is it me or is it them? Right. But we can only know about us. We can't know about them. Right. We can't know what they're thinking. We can't know what their motivations are, but we can know ours. Yeah. And we can ask a, a higher power, God of our understanding, to come alongside us and help us and to empower us to do things differently and right. in order instead of, but disorder always does raise its head at first. And you find yourself surrounded by it. Right. But eventually it goes away. It does. You don't know that at the time that it's going to. Right. And it was, it was interesting. I had people come along that were either therapists or counselors or people in the, in the faith I was in that would come alongside and be really stable as all of these situations would present. It was like one by one, they came into my life and would kind of counsel me through it. And those things as orders coming, you know, Right. Those things are put, healthy things are put in place, I believe, mm-hmm. because you are seeking truth and order. Mm-hmm. And that is really how it works. It is how it works. But it gets, all of a sudden you realize everything in my life is upside down and backwards and I've made every wrong choice. And now I'm surrounded by life and death situations, you know, even involving my kid. But I think that I learned too from the program that anything, usually if something feels urgent, it's usually not. Yeah, that's good. It just feels that way. It just, right. you know it's usually not as urgent as we think it is. Right. As it wants us to think it is. Yeah. It's usually There's not. urgency every day when you're coming out of that kind of chaos. Too. Right. Yeah. Or if you've come from a family. Where that's. Hysteria is <laughs> daily. Yeah. <laughs> There's, a, I mean, I know a lot of people like that. So yeah. I know, I think we've both experienced that. And how do you recover from a chaotic family? Is that, is, is that the same process? I think so. I think it's always about uh, when you have, um, family dysfunction, disagreement. The only thing that we can do as a, for ourselves is to keep our, our side of the street clean. You'll hear that a lot in the 12-step programs. Keep your side of the street clean. You can't do anything about what the other person right. doing or how they're going to react or what they're going to say. You do what you do because it's what you want to do. And it's, you're doing it for the right motivation, not being moved along by fear or hysteria. Or trying to force an outcome. Or trying to force an outcome. So what would be, because I like to share stories of like how crazy it's gotten. What would be your craziest moment or experience where you felt out of control? I, there's so many of them, but yeah, I think, I <laughs> Me too. It's like, which phase of life? Well, yeah. I mean, there were lots of years that I always felt out of control. And um, usually I would have that out of control feeling and then I would get physically sick and have a migraine and be sick for three days and um, but that passed eventually the craziest story I can't there are so many I can't really think well, what's the craziest thing you did thinking you were doing right 
um, I can, <laughs> I do remember um, there was a night that I chased a drug dealer in my Honda Civic, which, you know, she, his, he had a sports car <laughs> and I had a Honda Civic and I chased him through a neighborhood. Um, he was probably high though. And he ran, thank God, because he could have killed me. You know, it just, it was that sort of thing that I was always, I was always sort of involved in the early years in that sort of thing, thinking that I could control or scare yeah, or threaten someone into not making a living by dealing drugs. Yeah. Really? And they don't take you serious. No. But it's almost like you're so overcome with fear that you become fearless. Right. Or you become um, crazy. You're crazy. Just crazy. Right. You think you can control something you can't control. But yeah. And I think it's, we all come to a point where it's like, I cannot believe this is my life. I don't mm -hmm. even know how to explain my life to somebody. Right. But there's, I mean, so many of us, it's, you're not alone in that. You just feel like your life is the craziest life. Right. Right. I can remember um, one time when um, my youngest son, my youngest had wanted to go into treatment and his dad had talked him out of it. Why? Um, I'm not real sure why. Was he not for sobriety for him? He well, he used with him. So. Oh, okay. And that's pretty common in families, believe me. Right. Or not. And he used with him, and I think that he was wow. afraid that um, because he was so young that if he went into treatment, I don't know exactly. I mean, I can't. I don't know. I just know that there was a cry for help, and um, he wanted to go into treatment. His dad talked him out of it, and uh, so I learned about that through his girlfriend his girlfriend called me and um i can remember thinking i was so angry and upset i was so angry because i was so fearful that my child was going to die you know? and you think here finally we've got treatment on the horizon he's, and it's going to work out it's going to work out here he's, comes relief yes he's gonna he's he wants to go in his dad talked him out of it um and i thought he's going to die. He's going to, I need to do something. You know how we have that yeah. urgency. I am in control. Yeah. I need to do something. I'm the sober, sane one here. <laughs> I was mad as a hatter and didn't even have, you know, I didn't have anything in my system. Um, and so I can remember for me through the toughest years, it was always good to go to the park and walk just mm -hmm. to walk. And so it was in April and I'm in the park in a brand new pair of tennis shoes and I stomped in that park for hours in the mud. Brenda's shoes, you know, they were never, they were never the same. And I had come to the conclusion that because I did have a gun, the best thing to do would to be just to get in the car, get the gun, go over and shoot him, shoot, <laughs> shoot the father. Wow. And he would, um, then I would have to go to jail. But at least my son would be alive and maybe that would force my son into recovery so um that i had made that decision that's what i'm doing i'll just do that i you know it'll be worth it it'll be worth it you know, i'm sacrificing myself I'm, for my son as i have always done <laughs> giving up my life what a savior i am yeah you know <laughs> what a martyr i'm such a good person and so um so i had decided that's what i would do i would just go and and kill him <laughs> and I could, I would, you know, I'd been married for 25 years. So, you know, the women's prison in Marysville couldn't be that bad. Come on. You know, not compared to that marriage. Not right? To pick, right. I could do it. I could do another tour of duty. <laughs> so as, as I'm leaving the park and just it's settled, I'm not thinking about it anymore. You know how, once you've made a decision yeah. for me, once I've made a decision, <clears throat> I don't allow myself to think about it. This is what you're going to do. Just, just go and get ready to do this thing. And the God of my understanding spoke to me clearly and said, his father is of no consequence in this situation. He has nothing to do with this situation. And see, I was giving him all the power. He yeah. had talked this child out of going through treatment. He was going to cause this child to die. Yeah. So. That's that, your belief system. Right. And so. That day, I wrote that date 
the date the date that that happened i wrote it i think it was um in sort of like a, a way though in a way that i journal i wrote that date down and exactly one year later to the day on the exact day one year later my child went into recovery went wow. into treatment wow. Now it didn't stick as it usually does at the first Still, time. And that's around. a pretty monumental thing. Yeah, I'll never forget it because yeah. I was, you know, as when he went in, I thought I could be in prison today. Yeah. If God had not intervened in my life, I would be in prison. Right. Wow. And thinking it wasn't so bad. Yeah. And who knows if that would have even. It wouldn't have it, made a big difference or not. Right. It, it would have probably made everything worse. Right. Because a lot but we of think we have to take the reins dramatically and drastically. And and a lot of times we make it worse. Yeah. I always made it worse. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. You know, I want to say, like, even telling a story like that, I feel so comfortable in the rooms. And that I always had said one reason I believe a supportive setting, like a 12-step program or whatever, you, whatever support you find in a group that has positive regard for you and similar experiences Um I always thought that the reason they were so effective is because you learn to self-examine. And that's the height of emotional intelligence is when you can self-examine and own your part of things and kind of self-correct. But the flip side of that is that there is such a presence of non-judgment. And I feel like sometimes I could go into the people I've met in the rooms and they're just the finest, kindest people. And everyone kind of sets their armor down for that hour or however long. And I could say, I was tempted to rob a bank or slap a baby in the face this week <laughs> and they will say, well, I've been there and right. I think you're doing your best, you know, do the next right thing, keep right. going, do better, you know, and no judgment whatsoever. So even telling a story like that, everyone has those thoughts or has those days in a supportive environment. When you work a process of recovering, I think the supportive rooms are so vital and critical because you have those two dynamics of you're forced to self-examine or you're led to anyway, you start to, and you're not judged. You're loved. It's such a loving environment. Right. Because we, when you're in the 12, when you're in family recovery, we, you can't tell us, we can't scare each other. We can't shock right. each other. We've lived each other's lives. Mm -hmm. We felt no, each we're other. we're just real about it. Right. We felt each other's emotions and it's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and that helps as you see other people, as I saw other people examine themselves and be real about their real feelings. Right. Because you can't really sit, sit in too many places and say, well, I thought about killing yeah. my ex-husband. And I honestly did because they, you know, somebody's, well, you can't do that. That's not acceptable. Or you like, I, I would have those moments with my mom because my mom was, uh, participated in my son's prescription pill abuse and I would think if he overdoses I have nothing to lose I'm going to go stomp her to death mm -hmm. and people would say that's your mom don't say that but she's your mom and they just couldn't get it that how crazed you are and what it's like to go through that and even being validated that I'm sure you do feel like that didn't mean the person had to agree with me they weren't giving me advice but just not coming against me gave me the freedom to work that out on my own and they were probably they could identify with what you felt. Yeah. Maybe they weren't going to kill their mom, but maybe like me, they were going to kill their ex-husband. Right. Or the drug dealer. Right. Or whoever. Right. Or themselves. Or themselves. Because it's so miserable. Yeah. Right. And that's right. And how many of us do? Right. When, when a codependent person dies or a family member, it never says her child was an addict or her husband was an alcoholic or his wife was an alcoholic, you know, and if they commit suicide, that's never, it's suicide. It's never right. written as, you know, a life that was too tough, a life without yeah. support and care. Didn't you say it says in, in one of the books that you can tell somebody who's adjacent to an alcoholic or an addict because of the way they act? It says you could, yeah, and it's in the AA book. It's in the um, big book that, a lot of times you can tell that, that the man is an alcoholic by the way his wife acts. <laughs> so not, you can tell that a child is by the way their mom acts. By the way their parents act. <laughs> right. Right. It's true. Yeah. Because it's all connected. Right. Yeah. And it's not just the, you know, even when an addict or an alcoholic goes into recovery, the family's still left in the wake of that. And there's still things that are surging. Right. And I'm a big advocate for, um, and I tease about this, but it's, I really do think this would be a good idea. There's federal funding uh, for 
for children, for young people to recover. That's where a lot of the federal funds are channeled nowadays. But it's also important for the family. Yeah. The, the people that go into detox and recovery and the treatment, they, if they have a desire to stay sober, they get everything they need in those first few days. Right. They get, they will get medical, medical care. And then if they hang around, they're going to learn, they're going to be given the tools to recovery if they choose to recovery, to recover. They come back to family members untreated. Yeah. And we don't. Everything's the same. Right. And as we first come into the family, into family group meetings, Al-Anon meetings, Narnon meetings, um, you know us because we usually carry a pad and a pencil and you tell us what to do so and we we're going to write it down it. and we're going to write these, you know, we're going to write whatever you tell us to do right. and we're going to go home and do this. We don't understand what we're doing. Right. And, and when we're told eventually that it's about us and it's about examining ourselves and our motivations, it's like an assault almost at first. It's like, yeah, right. I mean, it's like you're almost mad, but it's like, one person in our rooms always says it's like coming into the middle of a movie and nothing makes sense. But then you keep going and keep doing the work and eventually it circles back around and it starts to all click into place. Right. But at first you're like, I came here because my life is a mess and this person's the biggest shouting behaviorist in the middle of it. And if, if we can figure out how to get this to come to an end, then life will be normal. But that's absolutely not the truth. That's what we say. That's what we say. Uh, my life would be fine if this person didn't use drugs or drink or do whatever, you know, offends me. Yeah. But your life or scares me. Scares me. Yeah. And what it, and if we're really honest about it, our lives are not fine. They're right. not fine. Even if this person stops doing what they're doing, I still have to deal with who I am and why I do what I do. Am I doing this out of love or am I doing this because I if I do this, they'll do this out of manipulation? Right. And that's a lot of how I operated for a number of years. I wasn't in living my life. I was uh, reacting. Yeah, right. Not ever. And then it's happenstance. Your day is controlled by outside forces always. You're always, not I don't know what, I didn't know what kind of day I was going to have when right. I got up. I was going to have whatever the alcoholic decided I was right. going to have. Until life told you how terrible your day was. You had no plans. Right. Right. I lived like that too. I, my, when my son went away to um, treatment, he left for California about six years ago. I really hit my rock bottom after that. And I was such, I didn't realize I was so high strong and on alert and easily triggered and such a mess. And I would call him and be in his business and asking about his recovery. And then, you know, I was in a state, it was like a Vietnam veteran. I was so shell shocked by everything. And then I started going back to the things I knew would stabilize me and certain therapies and prayer and things like that, but I really started aggressively working recovery, and I don't know that I would have ever stabilized if I wouldn't have. Right, right. We don't, and sometimes we die yeah. from the effects of the disease. Right. High blood pressure, you know. What is, I've heard the term para-alcoholic. Have you heard that before? <laughs> That's where, um, it's, I think it's, I forget how it's spelled, but it's para-alcoholic, and it's where we begin to mimic the behaviors of an alcoholic. Oh, co-alcoholic. Because we've lived with it. Right. Yeah. And I heard co-alcoholic use too. Right. Um, but family member will do for me. I, it's just, it's, it, it is a family disease. It's spiritual, emotional, and becomes a physical disease in us as well as in them. So. And mental, it was real mental for me too. It was all I thought about nonstop. Right. And I was, I was so surging and wounded and affected and paranoid and, it took me a long time to calm down. I think it's, don't you think it's like PTSD? This yeah, well, there's PTSD that is, occurs as a result of an event, like a car accident or, or a burglary, and then chronic PTSD, I'm sorry, complex PTSD, which is CPTSD, is chronic stress over a long span of time. So it's that complex PTSD where it's events that repeat over and over, over and over, over those extreme highs and lows. So yeah, it throws us into all the same symptoms of. And anybody who's lived with an addict or in an alcoholic home yeah. can identify with all those things. And the madness that it brings in the door mm -hmm. and the, the upheaval and then the after effects of driving in your car to work, you're worried all the time or the phone calls you get or, you know, you don't sleep the same at night and it throws everything upside down. Right, or you don't sleep at night. Right. Or you sleep with one eye open. Yeah, I slept with my shoes on because I, yeah. I wanted to be able to get up and go get him if something happened. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, you just live crazy. Right. Yeah. And but that's how we live, and that's why the that's why the rooms work. Right. Because we all, when you when we share feelings honestly, we see a lot of bobbing heads. Right. Yes. Oh yeah, indeed. I've been there. Yeah, did that. Right. Yeah, and I always tell my son because sometimes he talks, and it didn't dawn on me for a long time that he was traumatized by it all too, because I just thought it had been selfish, you know, bad characteristic choices until I understood that the disorder of it. But I remember telling him, um, "How are you traumatized? I went through it sober. You didn't have to go through it sober. Like I went through it alongside you, and I'm. You just think you have it so much worse because you're not the one that's." making the choice to use right they do they use they use drugs and alcohol because they can't deal with their emotions and we do and we use them right and we use yeah <laughs> in a way we do use them we focus on them right instead of foc- putting the focus on us we do, it's their fault right we blame i used him for my well-being yeah like he used prescription painkillers exactly he was my well-being and i would have to get that you know, contact, or I'd have to find out an outcome or find out how he was or direct him to behave a certain way or come get away from certain people. So mm-hmm. it was the same thing. I was using him as much as right. he was using her right. sets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's true. So what's life look like for you now? How would you describe life now for your family, for you? Um, it's, it's pretty peaceful and it's, you know, it really and truly, I guess I say this a lot, but it's, um, I would, I would have accepted a lot less than what I have today. I have peace and serenity. Um, accepted less in what way? I would, if, if I always thought if they would just, if they were just the kind of kids that didn't use drugs and alcohol, everything would be okay. We have such a deep, our relationship now, my relationship with these guys is deep. It's, it's emotionally stable. It's a spiritual, you know, it's a spiritual connection that we have. Um, I have a life really and truly beyond anything that I would have ever imagined. If someone said to me someday, you're going to not only like your sons, you're going to admire who they are. Right. I would have thought, you don't know my kids, I, but I really do. I like both of them. I admire both of them for what, how they live and what they've done. Um, and I think they have a deeper respect for me today than they've ever had because they know that if I say it, that I'm, I'm not threatening and I'm not manipulating. You know, I'm there if you need me, but I don't need to know everything. Right. I'm healthy enough that I'm okay. Yeah. I don't need to know everything. I don't need to be in control of your life. I can barely, I can't even control my own life. It's the honest truth. I can't control my own life. I have to invite a higher power and to help me to do me. That's what I just heard on a podcast I listened to yesterday that people have such a hard time with the higher power concept because they're not at a point of wanting to be religious, you know, or whatever it is. And they were saying how it could be, you know, uh, one guy, his higher power was the memory of a fishing trip with his father. It's for another, it's God and, or God of, you know, your understanding. And it's just whatever gives you relief and takes it off of you out of your hands. And is a, a bigger, somewhat of an authority. Right. And you don't have to come up with a doctrinal statement about your higher power, but it's just not you. It's not you. You believe that invites, invite the God of your understanding right. into your life. And what's important will come later. Yeah, that's right. Surrender is the most important and the first step. And letting go of thinking you drive the outcome. You can influence it. You can affect it, but you don't drive it. You don't drive And you really, truly, when when it comes down to brass tacks, sure, we're not really that important. When I learned that I really wasn't that important, I wasn't, certainly wasn't powerful and influential. I was not. Right. Um, And that I could only do me. Yeah. And I do me better when I invite a higher power into that. That was, I can't remember if it was you that had said that you weren't able to get them to do it, pick socks up off the floor, get them to right. do what you wanted to do. How could it be your fault that they fell into this behavior? How could you bring an end to this behavior? They're really not going to do what you want them to do. No, and I didn't, and that's the whole thing. I'm not, you know, I don't think parents feel guilty and bad and, what did I do? I spent years thinking, what did I do? What did I do? Or what do I do? What do I do? Right. right. You know, or now. what did I do? I suffered yeah. from a lot of guilt. And then I 
came to the realization that, like you said, like I've said before, you can't get them to pick their socks up. Yeah. You can't get them to do, you can't get them to, what, live the way, how do you, how are they going to live the way they're supposed to live? How can you tell them how to live? Right. When you can't even tell yourself how to live, really. Yeah. You can't. Right. It has to come from a higher power. Direction has to come from a higher power. And trust. That higher power always has a better idea. Always. Yeah. Always has a better outcome. Always. I remember that um, when my son was going through the worst of it, I remember um, because my mom was more involved in what would be called his enabler. So I thought I had to force consequences in the opposite direction. So I would try to get him arrested and I would try to come up with ways he'd get caught and arrested. And I remember somebody said to me, "This is it's just not going to play out the way you think it's going to. And honestly, it played out better because right. I remember thinking the only way this kid is going to wake up and hate his life more than I hate it and therefore want to change it is if I make it terrible. So he's going to have to, what's the worst possible thing if he got arrested? Because I can't imagine what he would do if he was in a jail cell, which a lot of people go through that. So I just thought that's probably got to be what happens, but it's not what it took for him. It didn't play out. It played out better and he's done better. Once I took my hands off what his past was supposed to look like right. and just did my part, I'm going to have faith and, you know, pray for this kid and be a loving support, but I'm not going to participate in the madness. I'm not going to enable it. Neither am I going to try to punish it. I'm going to just step back and let this thing play out. Exactly. Yeah, and that's where our recovery comes in because I think if we can, if we think we can figure out what'll make them get it, that's where our craziness comes in. But we don't know because they all get it different. You know, I had one woman talk, talk about. She came on a podcast and said she was had climbed a tree on safari in Africa and had remembered a conversation with her best friend and it just clicked and she wanted to get sober. And you have another one that just has a conversation in passing and they have an aha moment and they want to get sober. You have others that are, you know, that quote it, you know, quote rock bottom. But if we try to raise the bottom or cause those aha moments, that's where we get crazy. When I think we try to control their recovery. Right. I think it's the same is so who can, who can explain it's sort of like a spiritual exchange because it is a spiritual disease. Um, what causes it? people to get sober it's, it's different for different people what causes us to come into the program what causes us to have a spiritual recovery it's a spirit it's hard you can't put your hands around it i mean i think i had um like i said i had my oldest and a good friend and i saw them in their sobriety in their emotional sobriety and i yeah. desperately wanted it i was sick of being driven around by different winds, whatever wind yeah. blew through could take me anywhere. And um, I wanted stability. I wanted that peace. And it does, and the program does promise freedom. Yeah. That you'll become happy, joyous, and free. And I can remember the first time I heard that, I snorted. I thought, mm -hmm. right. What am I going to, how am I going to, I'm never going to feel like that. And I, today, I feel like that. Yeah. I'm happy joyous and I'm free and if I come up against something I know that it'll be all right right that it'll be all right that it's there's someone who cares for me more than I could care for myself and it'll always get resolved it'll always get resolved or it's not that important right and that's what recovery gives you is that gift of peace it's really a gift it is it's, it's waking up and being given a gift yeah so what would you tell someone who is in the middle of the worst time? If you think back to your worst times, your worst years, and just as you were waking up to the misery of it, what would you advise someone in, in just in the very thick of it? To try to keep the focus. Um, for me, it was the focus on myself, to focus on myself. And uh, by, by doing the next right thing, one thing at a time, why am I doing what I'm doing? What am I feeling? Face that fear, face that confusion. Yeah. You can't heal from feelings that you refuse to feel. And you can go around them, they'll come back up. So you have to, if you feel it and go through it, there's no way around but through. Yeah, I just posted that today, the way out is through. 
Right. The way out yeah. is through. You can't, I mean, I ran for years from fear, from confusion, yeah. trying to act like I wasn't fearful. I was, you know, I wasn't fearful. I'm not confused. I know what's going on. You can't fool me. But I was fearful and confused. And so face what you really feel. You can't heal from it until right. you face it and go ahead and feel it. And then it'll pass too. Yeah. Do the next right thing, one thing at a time. That's what I would recommend. Right. One of the best bits of advice I was ever given during a time of, of a lot of upheaval, and it was real tumultuous. Somebody said, do the next right thing for the next 15 minutes over and over again. And over. Over and over. Do the next right thing. And then eventually you're doing it for an hour. Then you're doing it for a day. And then life just starts to improve. Just keep doing the next right thing. Right. I would go around when my kids were little and um, I was, you know, just I worked part time. Not So I would walk around in a house that was completely in upheaval, not knowing what to do. Well, I could have done the dishes, could have run the laundry, you know, I could run the washer. There were tons of things that I could do. I wasn't doing anything because I was too, I was driven by the confusion and fear and drama drama focusing on it's their fault their fault their fault their behavior this situation they did this, this problem. they said that what you know whatever you know and then it's when, when this one gets solved there's 10 more that pop up right <laughs> so it right. never really calms down there's always something outside of you that's causing right that, life the being turmoil. life and the laundry you right. need to do the laundry even though life's being life so i could have done that yeah, do the next right thing do the next right thing dishes laundry right whatever yeah so that is the road to recovery. So thank you so much for coming on, for sharing. And this is another episode of Addiction Nonfiction. I can put you in touch with Ruth if you would like. Everything will be posted on the Facebook page. Or you can email me at annieunhook at gmail.com. Thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to Addiction Nonfiction. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. You may contact host Annie at annieunhooked at gmail.com. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to Addiction Nonfiction. Addiction Nonfiction.